look on a guy's face when I hit it at Top Golf just never gets old. And it doesn't. It doesn't. And the funny thing is, just like you enjoy it, my husband loves it. He's like, yeah. look at this sucker. He has right. no idea. <laughs> And we're back with another part train. I am Evan Singer, one of your co-hosts. We got Mr. Cermak here. Good to be back, rocking and rolling. Guys, thanks for joining another part train. In case you're new, the part train, we use golf to help you live a better life or at least make both a little less frustrating. Learn to get better and achieve peak performance on and off the course from PGA Tour pros, best-selling authors, CEOs, coaches, mid-USAM champs, and more. Yes. Like our guest yes. today, Julia Potter, two-time U.S. Mid-Am champ. But before we get to previewing our awesome conversation with Julia, uh, we've got to talk about our good friends over at Roback. Mm. Roback had their performance t-shirts out of stock for months. Yikes. People loved them so much. I'm telling you, Matt, I don't know if you've, did you have a long sleeve one? I just got one of the long sleeve ones. Just, is that not a game changer? Well, I'm having my vest day as we oh, speak he's got a vest right now. Right now, yeah. The vet, the Roback vest over the long sleeve crew T-shirt or the long or or the collared shirt. I don't know if they have a better long sleeve piece of clothing than they do at Roback. Huge yeah. fan. So, guys, a little bit of context here. When you get a long sleeve performance T-shirt, it's the perfect thing to wear at home when you're working from home or going on a walk in the morning, trying to stay active, working out when it's a little bit more chilly, putting it as a layer under your golf shirt yes. and your, your Q-zip. I mean, it's so versatile. It's my favorite thing that they make, not to mention their Q-zips are fantastic. So it, what yeah. we're going to do is Love it. we're going to drop a, a, a special uh, link for part train listeners only in our show notes. It's also linked in our Instagram and Twitter at all times. So if you guys don't know which episode you listen to, just go there and it's, it's linked there. Uh, but click on this link. If you haven't bought Roback before for new Roback customers, you'll get 15% off. Um, and if you are, uh, if you've bought it before, you won't get a discount, but um, it's good to use that link anyways, because it, it helps us out. So um, it shows that people are, are, are listening yeah, and using it, it, stuff. When it gets in the 60s in LA, everybody starts shivering. So get one of those long sleeves. I mean, yeah, Ev's you get, definitely need a long sleeve when it Ev's gets I was getting 60s. cold out there. So yeah. Love sure. the guys at Roback. Love them. Yep. Okay. Uh, do you want to give some context about Julia? You guys have known each other for a long time. Yeah, great episode with Julia Potter. So Julia is a two time US women's mid am champ. She won in 2016 and 2013. Incredible accomplishments. Um, she played. Division one at Mizzou. But prior to that, Julie and I grew up playing junior golf together when we were 10 years old, 11 years old, traveling around the Midwest. Her family and my family were like on this circuit together. And Ryan Winehouse, my, our, my roommate mm -hmm. and teammate, knows Julia the same way, growing up in just Midwestern tournaments, playing in terrible weather. And, just be, and, you, and you just get to know people. So it was really cool to have Julia on. I think there's a lot of great takeaways for for our listeners, you know, I was, I always marveled at Julia's ability to get in the hole, to get the ball in the hole. She was never the flashiest player. She never hit it the longest. We talk about that on the episode, but she just was like, she always had this like confidence about her and she was just such a consistent player. And it's no surprise to me that after college and she was a great college player, that she's winning the biggest amateur tournaments in the world. 
it's really no surprise to me because I got kind of really a look in, you know, playing with her all, all those years. So it was, it was a thrill. Yeah. And I think, you know, we said this in the episode, we need to do a better job having more women on the show. But I think yep. the reason, not just because we, we appreciate women, we think there should be more women on the show. I think golfers could learn a lot from women players. Totally. You know, like, and we talk about that on the show about how, you know, they don't have the big bulky muscles like some men do. And they, the way that they swing is something that we can learn a lot from. Not to mention, we talk a lot about course management, the mental side of short game. There's so much at the, make sure you guys stay to the end because uh, we really get into some things that could change your own game. Um, no doubt. But before we get to the interview, Matt, I mean, I'd be remiss without mentioning it. I promised Julia I would. Yeah. You guys went to prom together junior year yeah. of high school? Is this true? Junior year. This is the, the rumors are true. <laughs> um, Julia lived in South Bend, Indiana. I lived in Chicago. Kind of like an overnight, you know, just weekend trip. And, wow. um, you know, stars lined for us, you know. Wow. I mean, so those are, those are good. Those are good, funny memories. <laughs> she said you were a but, good uh, date, so. Well, you know, I try to, you know, I try to, you know, be there in the moment, right? Yeah. Uh, Julia and I, had, we had a great, we had a great time as, as kids growing up, and uh, it's funny to look back. But last thing, Ev, Julia really gets into, she has fun thinking her way around the golf course. Mm. And for everybody tuning in, you need to really dial into this. And really kind of, and, and, and she breaks it down in a simple way. But Yeah, love it. Well, guys, tidbits. if you're not following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, all of it, follow us at The Par Train. Um, we've got a bunch of, we actually have a giveaway. Um, well, this is going to come out after the Masters, but we have giveaways all the time. Um, we've got a lot of fun stuff there. So make sure you're following us. And if you're enjoying this podcast, do us a favor leave us a five-star review uh, rating and review. It means a lot. It helps us move up the ranks and do this more. So um, thank you guys for listening. Uh, hit it well out there and think your way around the course. I think Julia can yeah. taught us a lot about that. Go work on your short games for once. It's an inexpensive yeah. habit. Trump always said that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right, guys. guys. Uh, take care. Julia, we've got a really fun question to start you off with. Um, we know you grew up in South Bend, big Notre Dame fan. What would make you more happy? Notre Dame winning a national championship or Tiger Woods winning back-to-back -back masters this weekend? Oh, that is a tough one. That is a great question right off the bat. Think um, about it. That's what we do. I really want to go with, I'm just going to go with my gut here. Mm -hmm. Oh no, actually now I got to back it up. Sorry. Uh -oh. <laughs> Think about yourself. So are we Not about are your we dad. <laughs> we love your dad. Well, <laughs> um, so we're saying like, it's gotta be Notre Dame. Come on. It's gotta be Notre Dame. Even yeah. if it's an asterisk year, because it's such a crazy year, it has to be Notre Dame. I, I love Tiger Woods. Everybody knows I love Tiger Woods. Um, and I cried when he won last year. And if he won this year, I'd probably cry again, but it's been a very long time. Yeah. Um, and I just would love to see Notre Dame finally be able to. I, I was at the national championship game in 2013. I would really like for us to have a positive note 
going into this new decade because um, that one was a hard one. So yeah, I gotta I gotta go Notre Dame on that one. Final okay. answer, Notre Dame. Final like answer, Notre Dame. I like it. Smart. Um, Julia, you've played all around the country and I think maybe all around the world. What is your favorite course if you had to pick and why? So my favorite course to play is actually my college course, Old Hawthorne in Columbia, Missouri. Nice course. Um, yeah, played it's a, played in tournament there, yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful golf course. I always feel comfortable on the course. I always feel like it can deliver different shots to me. It's definitely a course that during my four years in college, you know, you play from different tees and you saw different angles. So for me, like that's, and I've played well on it. So yeah, that yeah. always helps. Um, so for a course that if someone was like, you're going to play this course day in and day out for the rest of your life, I would go with that. Now, mind you, I haven't played like a Pine Valley or a Pebble Beach or Augusta National. So I'm sure those, my answer could change, but you know, I have such great memories from that course. I think it made me a better player. Um, and every time I go back to play on our fundraiser, or go back to visit Mizzou, like it's just a, it's a place I have a good time at and love playing. Julia, I think, you know, Matt and I have talked about this a lot. I think we could do a better job having more women on the podcast. As of right now, it's just you and Dottie Pepper. We've had Dottie a couple times. Not a bad group. And I think there's actually a lot for men to learn from women golfers. Um, we've had plenty of golf coaches on the podcast. Um, and we keep hearing the same trend of men have these, you know, we tend to like building up our vanity muscles, right? Big shoulders, big biceps, big chest, whatever. And a lot of times that can actually get us into trouble. And it's very rare to watch the pro tour with the ladies and to see anything other than beautiful tempo, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of times because women don't have or put as much focus really onto those big muscle groups as men do, mm -hmm. you're a better model, I think, for swinging the golf club using your whole body, right? Versus your arms and getting everything out of sync. I'm just curious, like in your experience, what do you think men can learn from women in regards to the golf swing and how to play the game? I mean, I think you, you kind of nailed it. I think I would, I've, now mind you, I've never looked this up, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if the smash factor on the LPGA is a better, is better than on the men's on average, mm. just because I think the women's swing and the way that it's built, you know, it's tempo, it's taking advantage of, you know, the downswing, it's all of those things. So, I mean, you watch the PGA tour and you watch those top echelon players and, and yeah, there's a Brooks Kepka who's, you know, shoulders for days. Um, and I, I don't know what a smash factor is, but it would be intriguing to see, like, is he really getting everything he can out of those shoulders versus say like a Maria Fossey who is, is built, but she's not, you know, by any means like huge or anything. And, you know, she's killing the ball. So, I mean, I would completely agree with you. I've had this conversation with men at our country club with my own husband where, you know, they are every, and I agree with you, like there's a lot of times where it's so quick to look at the numbers on the PGA tour. So quick to see what a Ricky Fowler, Bryson, a Kepka, DJ, all that. But for the most part, for the majority of golfers, men and women, 
I think they would learn more from the LPGA, not only in the swing tempo, but how they approach a golf course. You know, there's not a lot of times, there's not a lot of LPGA players, especially with the way the courses are set up, that they're going to overpower a course. Now it can happen. And, you know, it's happened before, but I don't think it's as much as it is on the PGA tour. So for those who are, you know, just like, a golfer out there every day, maybe not playing in the upper echelon amateur events, but, you know, even junior players, um, both girls and boys, I think they can learn a lot from the LPGA tour and how they address the game and the tempo and the fluidity of the swings that are out there. Cause it doesn't look like it's a lot of power. Like there are times where I'm like, that doesn't look like a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And then they're five foot four hitting at 270. There's a lot of power. Right. They're really taking advantage of what they've got. So, you know, it's just an interesting aspect of the game on on both, on both sides. But I I agree with you. I think there's a lot that all golfers can learn from the LPGA players on um, specifically tempo fluidity and just the way they approach the course. Julia, there's definitely, I think we all know an obsession with distance on the men's tour right now. And Bryson Uh is kind of taking that into a new conversation I was looking at statistics on the LPGA tour in middle of the road, like driving average is 253, mm-hmm. you know, and number one is 288. Do you think the, is, there isn't an, a similar obsession or in, do you see junior players like at your country club around like really focusing on it too with their coaches as much as the men? Or what, what's your take and is it helpful? I, well, those are two different questions. Um, so I would think, to what I've noticed, I don't think it is as prevalent on the women's side of the game right now, but I do think it's getting there. I mean, I'm playing with these great amateur golfers. I mean, I, um, I played with a, a female who at the U.S. Open qualifier a couple of years ago who just blasted it by me, like maybe one of the longest female hitters I've hit, I've seen. And I was talking to her about it. And she's like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm working with my coach to get like five to 10 more yards. I'm like, well, what, why? Like, <laughs> right. You hit this part four and one, why? <laughs> um, so I think that's kind of, I think the trend is getting there. I, I know for a fact that um, I've spoken to some women mid-am players who, you want in specifically who's looking to gain 10 to 15 yards over the winter break and she already hits it a pretty good ways. I just think that's the theme. Um, I'm going to make a statement. I don't know how it's going to go. Make it, make it. Everyone's trying to make this game easier. And I think it's in everyone's mind, like headspace right now that the way to make it easy, the easiest way to make it easier is to get longer. So I think that's the trend right now. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not a long hitter, so I'm probably a little biased to begin with on seeing the trend going there because I don't know if I can keep up. I mean, I'm 33 years old. I have a full-time job. I really don't know what I can do. Um, I don't really want to go through a swing change at 33 to to get more distance i i don't have the time um to do so so i'm probably a little biased negatively towards it to begin with i just don't know if there's longevity in this 
just for the sheer fact that how long can a body take on that torque, that extra yep. weight, all of those things. I mean, I, I had a knee problem a few years ago. I lost 20 pounds and the knee problem's gone. So clearly the weight, your body is only made to take on so much. So it's interesting. I think it's the way the game's going right now, unless the governing bodies kind of step in and say, Hey, this is enough. Now, I think, um, the comments yesterday from Augusta are going to have some, um, I think there's going to be some more discussions because of the stance that they're potentially taking in regards to distance on tour and with golf. And just in case people didn't hear that, do you want to explain what, what you heard yesterday, Julia? Yeah. I mean, he basically stated um, that it's an issue that needs to be looked at and that while Augusta has the ability to make changes to the golf course to keep them relevant, he's not he's not sure everybody's going to have that ability. And so therefore it's something that needs to be taken a look at. And, and I agree. And I don't know what that looks like. I honestly don't get paid enough to figure out what that looks like. Um, but, and if it's going to be two separate rules or two separate drivers or whatever it might be, I, but I think it's a very, I mean, my feeling about it is that we, we kind of let it go for too long and I get yeah. why we did it. Distance is, a, I mean, in this terms of golf, this is the fun conversation. It's the sexy conversation. It's the drive for show and putt for dough situation. So I get it. It keeps golf exciting. But at some point, um, you're going to, I mean, this was Bryson taking on this situation. And he's not, he wasn't a big guy to begin with. I mean, he wasn't small, but he wasn't big. And he gained all this muscle went with the, the extra length driver. And he's what carried at 377, 37, 380, like crazy numbers he was showing um, at the driving range this past week. What if somebody like a DJ at Tony Finau, um, someone who has maybe, maybe a little more of a structure of a wide receiver in the NFL, what if they took on that same, we're looking 400 easy, 450, and, and that's going to be an issue. But to your point, if they don't get hurt, right? And I think, you know, Fred, right. Rid Fred Ridley from the Masters. Talk about number 13, right? The hole we all love that's averaging almost a natural bird, right? right. So I think that's going to be a, be a challenge. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I, what I'm intrigued by. So I think distance is important. It does make a course easier if you're hitting it straight. But approach shots and putting are so important at, at the Masters that I'm – I'm going to, I think my feeling on the complete distance conversation will take shape afterwards because if there's still a way to mount a defensive, of course, by the way the green concepts are, the way the approach shots are going to be, then is it still an issue? Yes, but maybe it's not as big of an issue as it needs to be. So sure. I, I'm kind of intrigued to see what comes to fruition after, after the masters. Um, and I think a lot of other people are, I think they're kind of waiting to see like, this is, these, these people know what they're doing. This is the end-all, be-all. If they can't figure out the potential defense for it, or maybe there's some courses where it works well and some courses that it doesn't. I mean, yeah, Bryson played amazing at the Open. But, he, yeah, but his scrambling and his putting was great. Right. Yeah. And the Open is interesting. I mean, look at the last five people who won the Open. It's 
Bryson, big hitter. Gary Woodland, kind of, sort of, but Pebble big Beach hitter. is a different set of big, big hitter. hitter yeah. But I mean, Pebble Beach is just narrow. I was there last year. I mean, those that rough was thick. Then it was Brooks Kepka, Brooks Kepka, DJ. I mean, you just named the what the top five hitters in the in the so yeah. maybe yeah totally. So maybe that's just the U.S. Open because that wasn't the case so much for the PGA Championship. Um, and and we didn't get a British this year, so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, it's, it's interesting, ahead, Julia. It's like uh, it kind of reminds me of like the '98 season. You know, I'm from St. Louis, so obviously in in baseball, the '98 season. And really for, you know, Matt and Come everyone. Like, yeah, I was like, what? Yeah, actually everyone here. And everyone in general, like Maguire, Sosa, the home run. I feel like, you know, a couple seasons ago, not this past season with baseball, people were kind of like whispering, like, did they juice the ball, right? There was more home runs than ever. They got a handle on like the steroid thing, but they're hitting more home runs than ever. And it was one of the most exciting seasons, you know, in, in – history so it's interesting how they're going to balance the excitement factor of a game that's really unless you're really into it it's hard to get new people into it you know unless tiger's winning or bryson comes and gets new people talking so it's going to be interesting how they balance that right no i mean i completely agree with you i mean who i guess i mean bryson was a well-known player but there's people who are very, very casual golfers, if not golfers at all, who know that name because that's been everywhere. That's been the story. Right. That's it's the sex. It's the sexy component of golf. You know, using that quotes, of course. But um, but yeah, I I think it'll be really interesting because it's like okay, as soon as you shorten the core, you know, shorten the distance, you know, where's the fun? Where's the sure, potential right. fun? Yeah. So so Julia, you're a two-time U.S women's mid-am champ you're one of the most decorated indiana women golfers probably in the history and for the listeners out there julie and i played tournaments together when we were nine years old across the midwest so we know about we want to talk about your success recently at, at the amateur level but talk to the listeners about your experience at mizzou as a division one golfer um, i was lucky to play in division one at missouri state um, what did you learn from those times um the goods the bads and you know how do you look back then to kind of see where your career is now and and how it shaped you yes it's 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 really interesting i kind of want to back it up a little bit on how i ended up at mizzou um so i was being recruited by a couple big 10 a couple big 12 schools and mizzou was actually the last one to come up on my radar um i originally thought i was going to go to this one school and then the communication kind of broke down and the next thing you know I'm kind of scrambling and be like "Ooh, I kind of sort of put all my eggs in one basket what can I do so I reached out to a couple people and they were able to get me in connection with a few schools in Mizzou being one of them and you know I had gone to a big big high school um, in the South Bend area and I just kind of realized I wanted to get out of Indiana and I wanted to do something new so I show up to an unofficial visit with my mom and met with the coach and it, I guess to kind of back it up a little bit she'd come and watch me play at a, an, an AJGA in Michigan and I she'd seen me play nine holes both her and another coach um, had seen me play nine holes and I did not hit the ball very well but I shot two under <laughs> I, I hit I missed I hit only two greens and I made both putts and every other time I got up and down short game. you know 
It's True gonna be kid. A, it's going to be a theme with Julia. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a theme. Um, and I talked to both coaches afterwards, and the one coach was like, you know, you know, you're probably able to hit more greens. We're going to get more length on you. Blah blah blah. Okay, I know this. I I know my weaknesses in my game. And then I talked with Coop, and she was like, yeah, you know, sometimes you have an easy easy 36 and sometimes you have a hard 34 she's like that's just the game of golf and like I thought you did well and for me to have somebody take that angle it's not like I needed you know smoke being blown up my ass but just a different thought like I I she kind of understood already that I understood my weaknesses in my game and just wanted to talk about what she saw for me out there so I took an unofficial loved it they were building new dorms for um for the freshmen uh, uh, year that incoming year and then they were also building a new athletic facility and just kind of the newness of that and me really wanting to to go someplace new to kind of start over to meet new friends and expand you know what I've already kind of lived the last 10 to 12 years in Indiana um, that is really kind of what drew me to it and that that kind of is what continued to draw I loved about it for the four years. There was always something new. We got a new course my sophomore year. We had like new tournaments that we went to. I got to see and play some amazing golf courses. And I mean, there's always going to be hardships. There's, there's always going to be a balance of school and, and golf. And I think if you ask my parents, my coach, my athletic or my academic advisors, they would say maybe I didn't have the best balance in that at all times. Um, but, but it's but it's a challenge. I'm going. To. It's a challenge, and I kind of I mean this is not what I recommend for a lot of people. But I knew who I was as a golfer is that I was there to play golf, and I was gonna get a degree. But I knew that golf, not playing professionally, but just playing golf, was gonna help me with my career afterwards. Does that make sense without sounding yeah. really lazy? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I miss college golf all the time. I miss the team. I miss the camaraderie. I'm sure you would say the same, Matt. Like yeah. there's just something about it and having a team of 10 to 12 people going through the exact same thing you are for four years, the workouts, the classes, the practice, the qualifiers, you all spend that. a lot of time together. You spent a lot of time. You spent a lot of time. Brian Winehouse knows about that. <laughs> so I'm sure you've got some roommates and teammates. Oh yeah. I mean, you spend a lot of time and, and you will always have that bond. I mean, there's people who I haven't really seen in years and then I'll see them at the fundraiser and it's like, we're picking up where we've left off because there's just that bond that you have. And I mean, that's probably, golf has presented with me a lot of amazing opportunities, amazing experiences. Um, but that, I mean, that to me, I think that's gotta be number one. I mean, that's saying a lot because I got my job because of golf, I met my husband because of golf. So hopefully neither my boss nor my husband are listening to this right now. But um, yeah, I think, when you go through something like that and you go through the trials and tribulations and the camaraderie and that team makeup, I think it just helps you going forward with whatever you're doing, both personally and professionally. So I feel very blessed to go to Mizzou. I, I love that team. I love my coach. I still talk to her on probably almost a monthly basis, um, whether it's about how the team's doing or how I'm doing. Um, so I feel 
I, I know I would not be where I am today without going to the University of Missouri. Julia, help people understand, because, uh, you know, we've mentioned Ryan many times on this show, and I, we've, I've known many good amateur players over the years. It seems like people are really protective of amateur status. Right. And that's something I don't think a lot of people understand. I, I mean, I've seen it so many times where, you know, a guy is one of the best amateurs out there, has a chance and doesn't even think about turning pro. They mm-hmm. want to keep their amateur status. Can you help people understand why that is, where that comes from? Well, I mean, I think there's just, I mean, when it comes to the game of golf, it's, I think the the baseline is amateur golf. I mean, the majority of the players in the sport are amateur. I mean, there's, um, I don't even know what the percentage is, but I'm sure it's very, very minuscule of how many actually play as a professional or teach as a professional. So I think that has something to do with it. Um, it's also not the, you know, once you choose to play in one event as a professional, you're looking at a minimum of a year, maybe two years to be able to get back out there and play in the event. Now you can play in some state. Op- so I know this for a fact because I actually, I went professional um, shortly after my uh, college career ended. Um, I was lucky enough to get full status on what is now the Symmetra Tour, but at that point in time it was called the Futures Tour. And um, yeah, I mean, when I decided to get my amateur status back, I had, nothing to play in. I couldn't play in really a, a professional event as a professional. Um, I could, I played in my Texas state open because I was living in Texas at the time. And I was in this weird category. I forget what word they use, but I couldn't get the amateur purse and I wasn't identified as the low am, but I couldn't get anything in the professional purse. Um, and so it's just this very weird thing. And what I think not a lot of people understand is when you are trying to get your amateur status back, it's a two level situation where you have to be approved by the state association and the USGA. And at some point, if you've earned too much money or what they identify as too much money, you, you can't get it back. Um, now, I think they've become a little more lenient just knowing how many tours are out there and how very little money there might be for those starter up developmental tours. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I think it's just a mixture of of that and, uh, you know, and just the basis of the game, I think is very amateur. I mean, there's, you know, you look at the USGA, they put on four professional events a year and the rest are amateur events. There's so many that you don't even realize the four balls, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, I, I think it's just, I think that's just the basis of golf. And so that's why people are. And I also will say, sometimes you're just really careful about it because you really don't know what's breaking a rule and what's not. And so there have been many a times where I've had to call up and make sure that like, I'm not doing anything. And I know that other people have been questioned and it's a very, it's a very weird, especially if you get in that upper echelon of amateur golf where you can have a company provide you stuff, but you can't be paid, but you can social media. It's a very weird way of where it is. So it's a lot of calls to the USGA making sure you're not breaking anything. <laughs> well, so Julia, speaking of the amateur, so we, we, you won the US Med Am in 2016 um, and you won it in 2013, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, what was the mindset difference? You know, 
from 2013 to 2016 and talk about your great choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the difference between 2013 is, and 16 is basically night and day. Um, so 13 was the first mid-am that I'd ever played in. Um, it was the first one that I was able to qualify for. And um, I had not had, I've not had the best luck in qualifying for USGA events. I've played in a lot of USGA events. And basically a lot of them are because of exemptions. I've only technically ever qualified for, I think, four USGA championships through the qualifying process. Um, so I like, what? They're so hard. And, <laughs> and you get, it's a whole different mentality. And like, I could go into that, like, it is crazy. Um, so I had, um, I didn't even sure if I was going to qualify. So I jokingly said to my, to my coworkers and friends that like, hey, if I medal, like, I'll get a tattoo. Well, I ended up meddling. I did not get the tattoo, but I did follow it up. I go, all right, guys, that was maybe a little bit easier than I was expecting to qualify in metal. So if I win, I'll get a tattoo. So again, not expecting that I'm going to win because who, who comes right. into a tournament like that? So I drive out there. I don't even have enough vacation days to make it to the final day. I basically, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to, I drove from Dallas, Texas to Asheville, North Carolina. I got pulled over the first 90 minutes. Mm. Um, but the guy was a big fan of female golf, so he let me go, let me go with a warning. So that's helpful. We good, good vibes. Good vibes. Um, I had my practice round Thursday and, Friday, Thursday and Friday. My dad was caddying for me. Um, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm probably the first person to ever win a USGA championship with their caddy using a golf cart because my dad got a medical exemption to be able to use a golf cart. And that was a big, Love it. Story big deal for that time. <laughs> um, I thought I'd play my practice rounds. I'd do qualified, maybe make it, maybe make it past the first day. And then I was like, oh, if I'm already in Asheville, North Carolina, I'll swing down to Atlanta, Georgia, see my Aunt Gail, see her for a couple of days, drive on back to Dallas. Clearly that was not the case. Um, I didn't do so great in my practice rounds. I was pretty exhausted because I had worked the weekend prior to the Wisconsin Ohio State game at, in Columbus, Ohio for my job. So my practice round didn't go very well. Um, I like slept for four hours the day before, like took a four hour nap. And the next thing you know, I'm in the lead after the first day, shooting the only under par score. I couldn't believe it. End up meddling. And then next thing you know, I'm in match play. I, this is the way the second time I made match play in a USGA event and I didn't know what to expect. And I'm just going out there being like, all right, you've made it this far. Like, let's try not to screw it up too much. So, um, almost lost my first match. I was, um, three down with six to play and one, I think two up, one up or two up. And then I kind of got on a roll a little bit and played some matches. And the next thing you know, um, I'm, in the finals and I'm getting interviewed by the USGA and they're like, so what's your next step? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to go get a drink and I now have to call my boss and tell him I'm not going to be in the office. <laughs> uh, yeah. So and they were completely understanding of that. So that was helpful. Um, and then, yeah, by that, I mean, it, to, my dad was the same thing. It was just this feeling of like, wow, I can't believe we made it this far. Wow. I can't believe we made it this far. Wow. I can't believe we made it this far. And then to actually win, um, just, it was, it was mind boggling to me. It probably didn't hit me until the next day. It kind of hit me a little bit then. Um, I was in the cart driving back up with the USGA officials 
and the communications director and I kind of like had my head in my hands and then I kind of I like I lifted up and I go holy shit I just won the USGA championship and I go please don't quote me <laughs> and she was, like, she was like no I won't quote you but yeah I mean, so I mean that was 2013 was just this incredible ride fast forward to 2016 and now I understand the grind I mean I was lucky enough to make it to the finals in 14. Um, and then when I lost in 15 in the round of 32, I think that was a bit of a smack, like a much, much needed smack in the head for me that like, hey, you can't just relax on the game that you had in 2013. Everything's going to advance. The players are going to advance. There's always going to be someone who's younger because it's 25 and, and older. So I kind of reworked my golf um, in 2016. I flew out to California and met and got fitted by the guy out there in Callaway. Um, I only played in my state events um, just to kind of make sure I wasn't overwhelmed work-wise and USGA-wise because I played in three back in 2015. That kind of was a lot for me. Um, and then, yeah, like I, that was just my whole focus that entire year was I won a win in 16. I, I won my first one on a Donald Ross course. This was going to be a Donald Ross course this was to me like this was my setup this was my time and it was it was just a grind for me from start to finish because I would not say that I brought I did bring my best game hitting wise I wasn't really driving it great off the tee or and I would hit some great approach shots but it wasn't like everything was dialed in but I just grinded over everything and there were some matches where I think I won one match, three and two, and I don't even know if I broke 80. And then there was another match that I won in 21 holes, and we were both under par. And if that's not match play, I don't know what it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just a grind. So by the time I hit that last day and all that golf, um, I wasn't really like striking it well, and nerves can really get a hold of you. And, and that's honestly what happened. But I, knew I could rely on my short game and that's I mean that's I think I had in that match maybe a total of 24 putts like something stupid I just was able to get up and down I was able to make putts from 10 feet and in I was always able to keep myself in it um and then yeah just kind of, I mean I was at the same time that I was four up with um seven to go and I lost four in a row so again the round was just everywhere for me but you know when push came to shove and I had to get up and down on 17 to I made a really great birdie on 16 um it was a probably like a 12 footer right to left slider every lefty's favorite putt uh <laughs> but I was able to make that and then to get up and down on 17 I mean that was really it was nice to know I can still fall back on something like that and I, I still to this day like even when I'm not hitting it well it's like it's okay I can get up. I can make par I can figure out how to make par the momentum of an up and down par in match play mm -hmm. oh I mean it's everything I mean you, you think and, and I've been on both sides of it where it's like oh, I'm gonna be able to make this par I'm gonna go one up and the next thing you know they get up and down from this crazy spot. And it's like, well, what else do I have to do? I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing by hitting greens and, and, and trying to make putts. Like, are you telling me I got to do go with birdies? And even then nothing's guaranteed. I mean, I, I, 
I've never had this conversation with anybody who I've ended up with in matches, but I'm, but I just know from my end where I've been on the same end of it where, I mean, I played with Lauren Greenleaf last year in the sweet 16 of the women's mid-am and she was knocking everything to like eight feet. And when she missed a green, she chipped in for birdie to tab my birdie. It's like, okay, what? I see where this is going. I guess I'll just stay in it for show, but I, I got an idea of how this is good. <laughs> I mean, she, I was, uh, I was five down after nine and, and one under. <laughs> so it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, a, a, a par it's, it's crazy how much an up and down par in match play specifically, not only at the end of a match, but how can it actually kind of set the tone at the beginning of a match? It's like, Oh, okay, I get it. Like, I'm going to have to make birdies and that just puts more pressure on your drive, on your approach, on the putt. And if you're not used to that or kind of have a hard time getting to that position, it can, it can mess with the person easily. So Julie, I have so many things I want to dig in on. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the Matt's smiling because he knows, uh, but the mental side of the game is a huge theme of everything we do. And one of the most popular episodes we've ever done is the mental side of an elite short game. And a lot of people talk, a lot of people think short game is technique, touch, right? Putting. Mm -hmm. That's a, obviously that's a big part of it, but Mm -hmm. the, the 10 and the 10 and above handicaps don't understand that someone like you, your caliber player, the way that you're thinking that helps you have an elite short game. I'm just curious if you can shed some light on maybe how you think about, like Matt and I have talked, for Matt, it all starts with the lie, right? Everything Mm -hmm. starts with the lie. A lot of people don't think about fat parts of greens and taking your medicine. I'm just curious if you can take us through maybe some keys for you mentally in regards to having a consistently good short game. Well, I, I completely agree. It all starts with the lie. The lie is going to dictate the club you're going to play, how you're going to play it, the swing path, whatever it is. It's, it all starts with the lie. And a lie can honestly, I think out of everything, not even a landing spot, the lie is going to also dictate my mental thought towards this chip. If I think I have a crappy lie, even though I have a ton of green to work with, the crappy lie is going to dictate my my mental thought about it because the lie will also help me figure out the consistency of how the ball is going to come out of there. If I've got one of those lies where it's like, "Ah, this could come out thin, this could come out thick. I don't know. It's hard to commit to something. And I think that's, that's the hardest part. Um, For me after that, it is definitely looking at like, okay, what am I, where am I needing to land this? What is the conditions of the course? Is it, firm green is it a soft green am i into the grain am i against the grain am i into the wind am i downwind am i downhill uphill like all of those factors kind of have to go into what your game plan is for that shot and then also i completely agree there are times where it's like well i could really go for this but if i hit it a little too hard i'm gonna hit the slope and have 30 feet or i'm gonna feel confident enough in my putt that if I play it out a little bit farther left the five to eight footer that I have I can make or the 10 footer or the 12 footer or whatever it might be um so it's also kind of playing in the the pros and cons of how you want to play this shot and and honestly like how much you kind of want to toe the line a bit 
Um, and then after that, it's, it really is just committing. It's like you have to commit to something because if you don't, it will affect the way you, you physically approach the shot. I mean, I, I've had this conversation um, with my husband a bit. He's been having a bit of a, of a chipping situation. And I was like, you, at some point, you have to mentally commit to what you're going to do. And if it, because I promise you that if you commit to what you do, even if it wasn't the right call, more often than not, that's going to be a better, like it's going to end up better than not committing and then chunking, thinning, whatever it might be. I mean, you might get lucky, but, yeah. um, so, I mean, that, I mean, that really it is. And, and the other thing that I think helps my chipping is that I probably, and at times I'm sure am overconfident with my putting because I just feel like it only takes one good shot. I, I had a caddy who caddied for me all throughout high school and college. His name is John Cup. He's a really good friend of mine. And I remember playing in a U.S. Open local qualifier. And he goes, Julia, it only takes one good shot to make a par. He's like, I've seen you hit a sh crappy drive, a crappy approach shot, a crappy chip, and make a 30-foot putt for par. And that's four. And I'm like, oh, you were right, John. You were right. So that's always in the back of my mind, too, is like, it only takes one good shot. I mean, we've all been there. We've hit crappy, crappy. And the next thing you know, my chips to a foot. Okay, cool. Let's yeah. I'm gonna tap out and move on. But so let me dig into one thing you said, because mm -hmm. so for context, I'm a seven, right? I can okay. empathize with uh, high handicappers out there. And so when you're talking about all the elements that go into things you consider before a short game mm -hmm. shot, I could feel the amateurs listening to this feeling overwhelmed. Yeah, right? that's They've got, fair. They got to think about the lie. They got to think about grain, downhill, wind. What, is, what would you say to them that's like, I don't know what to focus on. What's one thing I should focus on? Is there one little thing you think that could help them mentally around the greens that maybe, you know, a 15 handicap isn't thinking about? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think my, if I were talking to someone who's a 15 handicap and they're approaching this chip, I think you have to, I would just weigh the pros and the cons of going after the pin versus not going after the pin. Mm. Because I've seen a lot of people try to do that or try to hit the flop shot or try to hit this amazing shot and they scroll over the green and that's how the doubles, that's how the high numbers add up. Yeah. Where it's like sometimes maybe take your legs and believe in that 15 foot putt because at some point if you keep leaving yourself that 15 footer maybe one or maybe one will drop in a round or two rounds or whatever it might be um i know there's a lot to consider and but that's while i so lie again is number one but then after that you kind of have to work your way back from the hole and that's starting with weighing the pros and the cons of the shot that you have and where the pin might be and where you want to land it. So that, to me, that is, that's what I would focus on the most. Everything else, like, yeah, it's going to affect your shot. Maybe a foot here or three feet there. What, what are all those other things that I, I mentioned? They're smaller variables, but the biggest variable outside of lie is definitely like, what are you actually working with around the hole and making sure you're not bringing into play the higher number. Julia, I think that's, I think that's interesting. Like, how would you, I mean, wouldn't you say when you can't be as aggressive as you like, and maybe I got to chip this to eight or nine feet 
but mm -hmm. it calms your mind, right? You just commit yeah. to it, you do it, and you know, take my chances with my putting because I'm a good putter. Right. Now, if we're back to the 15 handicap, maybe that's how they need to practice, right? Like instead of just practicing and trying to make everything, chip it to 10 feet and then work on 10 footers. Yeah. Right? Like, I what do you think about that? Because I think oh. it's important for our listeners how to practice properly. I mean, I completely agree with that. I mean, if, if anyone was going to ask me, I mean, I've, I haven't putting, I mean, I started the game putting and chipping. I didn't swing for a full year. My dad just cut down some clubs and went hot. Like when they would go and play, he would drop a ball and he was like, all right, Julia, chip and putt until you get it in. Dad. I, yeah. Great move, dad. Wise, wise uh, man. Let's not go that far. I said it, no, not you. Yeah, you said it. No, no, no. He's, I mean, that was really wise of him and that's I, what I recommend, but I mean, that's still the most important thing that I practice in my game is if someone's like, I mean, how much time are you spending? If I, in a full hour, I'm, mind you, I'm not a driving range person. Um, and if I can't go out and play, like I'm maybe, maybe 15, 20 minutes on the range. If the swing's, if the swing's good, I don't try to mess with it. If the swing's bad, I always say, well, there's always tomorrow. So that's kind of my mentality. But that's good, that's good at it. That's good. Yeah, that's yeah you, you're not gonna knock it out of the park every day. Um, I guess unless you're getting paid millions of dollars and then you should, but, um, but even they don't. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Trevor yeah, Illman won the masters, never won again. You know, there's right. plenty of guys, Sean Foley talked about it last week, you know, that it's, yeah. that's the game. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the interesting thing is the pros are being paid to do that and they still struggle. And yet the amateurs, I think the expectations thing is, one of our biggest challenges as an amateur is we get we romanticize the perfect shot we hit on the range last week and we've been trying to hit that shot over and over when if you actually look at it from like a data standpoint no that was an outlier that's not yeah. your average yet you're mm -hmm. expecting your outlier every time oh right? yeah and that's i mean i hate to i mean if i'm if anyone's ever caddied for me and maybe this is the and I have to get a little bit better at this, but I probably favor when playing a hole and setting up a hole, I, at times, I more, more often than not favor the miss than me striping it down the fairway. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to aim it here. So if I have that draw grade, I'm here, but if not, I'm right here. Instead of being like, okay, I'm going to take that driver right over this bunker. Cause that, how am I going to miss? I, I probably am a little, I'm probably sometimes a little too conservative on the course, but at the same time, it hasn't, it's helped me out. It probably helps me out in match play way more than a lot of other things because it always still keeps me in the hole. Um, but I'm sure there's other times where like, I mean, to get me to go for a par five and two with water is just, I, I have to be sitting real pretty to even try to do that. <laughs> or I'm always favoring. I mean, I just came back from the Bears club and on hole 10, it's a par five and I had a, 178 yards in which is um like a choke four hybrid club i hit pretty well water all on the right side bunker on the right side and my husband's like you're, you're gonna go for the green right i was like i'm gonna aim it on the left and then maybe like try to draw it in but if i miss i'm on the left he's like are you kidding me like <laughs> you're like why would you do that i'm like this is how i play yeah, this is watch. how it goes yeah just watch <laughs> just watch this is how i play yeah. um because and that's probably because i still believe i can get up and down for birdie from where i'm ever i'm at and so it kind of, as you can see, it's all kind of interconnected. But yeah, I think people always play. Um, it's like always funny because my 
Keo, my husband says this, he was like, I think one of the biggest lies in golf is how far somebody says they hit it. Um, because how far you hit it should be the average of your drives, but you usually get the one time I hit it 280 because I was down. Frozen fairway. Frozen <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was it's like, if that's the case, I mean, that's, that'd be like me saying like, well, I've hit it 295. Now, was I in um, Waco, Texas and it was windy as heck? Sure. Yeah. But I hit it 295. You know what I mean? So um, I agree with you. I think people focus more on the outlier and expect that every time. And, and that's not golf. Just like everyone expects to make every 10 footer. That's not golf. Um, and that is where I've, again, I've had this conversation with other people where I think if you look at the stats, if someone took the time to go look at the stats, you would say, yeah, the percentage of making a 10 footer isn't as high as you think it is. But when you see the highlight reel and they're only showing the best shots right. out on the course, it looks like everybody's making every 10 footer all the time. I promise you if Ricky Fowler's missing a 10 footer for, for par, unless he's in the lead or somewhere like that, that's not being seen. Right. But if he drops a 10-footer for birdie, that's being seen. Julia, I think the, you talked about the par five, you know, and mm -hmm. how to approach a par five. Because like you said, it's not just you. Even good players don't very often don't hit it. They don't hit it in two very often, mm -hmm. right? And back to like more of the middle handicappers, like very often I see a guy hits a great drive, hits it far, mm -hmm. pulls out three wood from 250 or 60 yards out and makes double. Right. Yeah. So it's like, and I think a theme I'm getting from you is for, it's, you don't need to hit amazing, try to hit amazing shots because mm -hmm. you put pressure on yourself, you put stress on yourself. Just try to hit more good, uh, okay shots with, a, with room to miss, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think everybody expects every shot to be the amazing shot. And you might have one to two to three per round, and two of those might be a chip and a putt. Um, yeah, but point. for the most, for the most part, like you, you got to play the game you're given. And a lot of people will just get better at the game. If they realize that understand their game a little bit more and not try to overpower the course or what they have on that given day. And I really do mean on that given day, because there are times where it's like, I'm on the range and I'm hitting a cut, I'm hitting a cut. I mean, and I'll see some people who the entire round you've hit a cut. And they'll be on the 17th tee and they're like, I think I'm going to draw it. I'm like, you haven't hit a cut. You haven't hit a draw all day. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Realize what you got at hand and play what you got. And that's, I think, the adaptation of golf that I think is sometimes hard for people to manage and grasp. Well, Ev, you've talked about it too, right? The warm up and accepting the warm up or working through the warm up, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's like using the warm up to, as where am I at? Matt Kuchar. We had Scott Langley on the podcast. I don't know if you know Scott from I do. growing up. I do. I love Dave. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, he talked about lefty. a lesson he learned from Matt Kuchar, <laughs> where Kuchar treats the first four holes as where am I at? So he aims for the middle of the fairway, middle of the green, and he uses real com competitive environment to be like, okay, I'm missing it a little left. I'm missing it a little right. Mm -hmm. From hole 14 on, I might get more aggressive based on the information I've received from hole one to four, same idea with the range, right? Where am I at? Versus you're right. I think all of us have experienced either knowing someone or doing it ourselves of 
hitting a shot differently than maybe we were used to. And you spend 18 holes trying to hit the shot you're used to versus hitting the shot that you've got that day. Right. I mean, going back to 2016 and that, that, um, me warming up before that final match, I was not hitting it well. It was a conversation that Keel and I had. I was like, I'm, this is not, the ball striking is not going to be what gets it done for me today. And just understanding that, understand what I'm playing, I was getting a slight pull off the driver and trying to kind of figure that out to the point that after I lost those four holes in a row, I looked at him and I was like, don't let me take driver out of this bag for the rest of the round. And I didn't, you know, even if I say, no, I think I'm good. I was like, don't let me do it. And then I hit the next two fairways in a row, won the next two holes, you know, so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think it's just identifying what you've got that day and adapting that to the course and like it goes back to what my my college coach said coach Coop. she's like there will be days where even par is easy and there will be days when even par is hard and that's just the game yeah you just kind of you're really debunking kind of a myth everybody says be confident in your abilities but julia what you're saying is like <laughs> maybe be confident <laughs> in some of your inabilities on that day right and, and that that helps your plan hmm. and your in your mind. And I think that is, that's hard to do. And, and Julia, you've been so great at, it. you know, growing up playing with you, you just always kind of figure a way to get it in the hole, but that's yeah. it's hard for any it's, ability of golf. I think what I'm saying is be confident in your ability to play this game and what's given to you on that day. I mean, everyone has played this game so much, so many times. And it's like, we've all been in every, I, I mean, I feel at this point, a lot of my confidence comes from, I've been in every situation. I've been at the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows. But the confidence that I have is that I can go out and make something happen with whatever's in my bag that day. So that might not mean that I'm confident in my driver that day. That might not mean I'm confident in my putter that day, but I'm confident that I can get it done. And I think that's the confidence that people need to focus on and develop is, the skill sets are there that when the challenges come your way, you can navigate it appropriately and correctly. And like my biggest frustration on the course now isn't sometimes hitting it bad. That's going to happen. My, my frustration on the course and it happened at the bears club is why did I play that shot to begin with? We were 115 yards out on a par five. My husband towed a little bit, put it in the water. Why did I not, go up a club and play it out a little bit. I was more mad about how I approached that than me also towing it and putting it in the water. I didn't care about the bad swing. I was mad about the way I played it. Mm -hmm. The the mental block, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, why didn't I just think myself? I was like, I honestly was like, I'm smarter than this. What just happened? It it sounds like it was a two, it was a scramble. It was a two person scramble. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was just like mad that I was like, I'm smarter than this. Like, we're smarter than this together. You've carried for me. Like what happened? But that's what I'm saying. Like, that's the thing that irritates me now is, is not the, the mishit. The mishit will come. Um, it's going to be how I handle it before and how I handle it after. Well, what I'm hearing, Julia, and we'll get you out of here after my final question next is um, a lot of amateurs have anxiety around the way they're playing because they identify themselves with the way they're playing where, and I think a lot of amateurs don't, you hear this all the time with the pros, like they didn't have it that day. They shot a 68. Adam long talked about it on the show a month ago. He, he just, 
it's just like anything else that people achieve greatness in. They show up when they don't feel like they have it or they don't feel like showing up, they do it anyways, right? Mm -hmm. And you, I think everything you've been saying in the last 20 minutes has been, could be really helpful to those people is it's not, you don't need to have it every day, right? And your ability to just limit the mistakes and try and give yourself the best chance to get it in the hole is really what I'm seeing is the trend of the best players. You just mm-hmm. think your way around more where a high handicapper is more, has more anxiety. They get on themselves quick. Oh, I don't have it today. What's happening. I thought I could play golf. I suck where you're, you're detaching yourself from that. You're thinking to yourself, okay, I might not have it, but what can I do? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so look, what I'm saying is a lot easier said than done. I'm, I've gotten to this point at, I'm not saying that the mentality that I have right now is the same mentality I had in college, same thing, mentality I had a few years ago. I, I don't know. I've, I've had this conversation with um, other mid-am golfers of the pressure that you feel and like the bar that they feel like they need to hit and all that. I get that. And I've kind of told, you know, I, I told her, I was like, you know, life got a lot easier. Golf got a lot easier for me when I won the second mid-am because I did it again. So it's like, how much more do I have to prove at some point I got to be cool with what I got and and just go out there and enjoy the game. I think the interesting aspect of a higher handicap, and I get this a lot when I will go and play with, I'll get randomly paired up or I'll play with a friend of mine who might have a higher handicap. They'll always say that they like playing with me because they play better, but I'm, I'm not out there giving advice. I'm actually really not great at doing swing tips or anything of that nature. But what I think they're picking up on is the way that I approach the game and understanding and keeping the big numbers out. I think that is the big difference between a 15 and a seven and a seven and a one and so on and so forth is just identifying when to go after a shot and identifying when to take your licks. Because unless you're bogeying 18, there's always a hole out there that you can bogey. Yep. And you can make that up. So I think that's, if that's, that's the advice I would give out to anybody is there's always the opportunity to make it up for the most part, you know, whether it's somebody doubled and now they're looking for a par or somebody bogey and they're not looking for a birdie, like wherever you are on the handicap spectrum, like uh, of golf, I need to finish that sentence. That would sound weird if I did. <laughs> wherever you are at, that I think is just a good thought to have is just managing the expectations and understanding that there's always the opportunity to make it up somewhere out there. Um, but there are going to be holes that are going to play very easy for you. And there are going to be holes that are going to play very hard and identify the opportunities where you can attack and identify the opportunities where it's like par bogey I'm out. Like I'll see you later. Hope I never have to come across this hole again. That's just the game. And as soon as, Maybe there's, I'm going to use this word, but I don't know if it really describes me. There's some humbleness to it. As soon as you take that in a little bit on what the course is bringing to you that day, your expectation will be easier to obtain and, and grasp and, and be able to do. Sure. That's good okay. advice. It's like, and the next, right? Just yeah. And yeah. The next. yeah. There's always another round. I mean, I, I, 
you know, someone's always like, I'm never, I think I love playing tournament golf so much that I'm never living off my last round. I'm living off my next round, whether that's good or bad. If I've won, if I've lost, I'm always looking to the next round of golf that I'm playing the next tournament. Um, and when you lose, that's great. When you, when you're winning, maybe you should soak it in a little bit more. <laughs> I don't know, but it's helped me get to where I am right now. And, and as I figure out what I'm going to do with the game of golf as the years go by, I hope I have that same mentality. I love that. Well, final question. I've been dying to ask you this all day. Okay. Um, I find it because my girlfriend plays golf and she was um, captain of her high school team. She's nowhere near as good as you, but I, I find it so funny. I almost like wait for it when I go to the range with her or we mm-hmm. go and play and we're matched up with people. It is mind boggling how shocked men are when they see a woman hit the golf ball well. Oh, yeah. And it's I my just, favorite part. I just want to hear from you because you know when you oh, walk yeah. up, tell, walk me through that as a really, as, as one of the best amateur women players ever from Indiana. What is that like when you know you're matched up with someone and you're, you're going to get that reaction? What is that like? Oh, I mean, I got paired. I was playing at a public golf course here at Indianapolis a couple of years ago, and we got paired up, of course. And the guy was livid that he got paired up with a female. Yeah. And the person on the behind the desk was like, "Don't worry, you'll be fine. Like she'll probably be beating beating your ass." And I did. But like that first shot of just kind of, I know I'm mentally shutting you up for the rest of the round is a great feeling. Um, I mean, how many times have I done that at top golf? Oh my gosh, that's hilarious! Like oh, man. just the jaw dropping. That's too and some, easy. And sometimes I like to mess with them and I'll start off right-handed and then move to left-handed or I'll go vice versa just to kind of see what happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, if that's not the quintessential, like don't judge a book by its cover. Cause there's, I mean, it's, I'm going to dig deep a little bit here, but like, it's a little frustrating where I have to step up to the T with whatever male counterparts with me, whether it's my husband or my dad, whoever it might be. And the assumption is that person's going to be better than me. And then I have to play a couple holes before you realize the, you know, the vice versa. There's a bit of a frustration in that. And I do think we are moving away from that a bit. There's just so many more females out there playing golf and it's awesome to see. And um, I'm excited to see where the game is going, but yeah, I mean, there's the joy. I think I like it was one of my most liked Facebook comments one time where I was just like the look on a guy's face when I hit it at top golf just never gets old. And it doesn't, it doesn't. And the funny thing is just like you enjoy it. My husband loves it. He's like, yeah. look at this sucker. He has right. no idea. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, it's just, yeah. When is it not fun to put somebody in their place? So yeah, that's a good time. Always have to look forward to it on the course. <laughs> Well, 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 Julia, this was, it was great having you on. Where can the listeners find you on social media and where should they be looking out for you? Maybe on the television, if you continue your, <laughs> your great play in tournaments and such. Um, I don't know if I'll be on television anytime soon. I was able to get on TV a bit at the U S women's am. 
um, this past year. So that was kind of fun for people to see my meltdown. Um, but <laughs> you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jules Potter. That's J U L S P O T T E R. Um, if you follow me on those things, you'll usually just see more a lot about my golf or my dogs and maybe a little a bit. Good about my, yeah. A little <laughs> bit about my personal life. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, I'm not, I'm trying to become more active in social media. Uh, but I will always let people know like what I'm playing in and, and the events I've played. And I just posted something about doubles golf that actually, um, just to put something out, they're not paying me to do this. They didn't ask me to do this, but this doubles golf thing, it's a lot like PGA junior league where it's starting to get those casual golfers more in it's a two person scramble. There's a men's division, a women's division, a mixed division and a senior division. And I really think for those who are in that, you know, want to play some pseudo tournament golf, but don't want to go out on an individual level. Um, this is going to become available, I think, to everybody, um, all, I think, 41 PGA sections starting next year. So um, this year was kind of a beta year where they had uh, some test sections and Indiana, thankfully, was one of them. And that's why Keel and I got to go do that. But just kind of, I mean, I know your listeners are a range of all different types of golfers, and I would love to let them know that 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 opportunity is out there for them. Um, there's tons of things that a lot of um, PGA Junior League, drive chip and putt, first tee, like just for the junior aspect. There's so many great programs. And if anybody ever wants to reach out and, and ask me about those, I'd be happy to tell them because I think going forward as much as I'm playing golf, I'm now just working in the game as well, really trying to focus on growing the game too. So happy to help. Love that. Well, I, I would say strongly that if people started to take more of a Julia Potter mentality out playing, then people would have a lot less anxiety and feeling of embarrassment around playing the game and probably would get more into it. So you're starting to grow it right that. now. <laughs> I am trying to. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Julia. We'll be rooting you on. And um, good luck to Notre Dame. Yeah. Football. Yeah. I mean, go, go Mizzou too. I feel like I'm, I feel like I've got to get it from my Mizzou peoples, but you know, it's, Mizzou too. but, but we need that. We, we need the Irish to win for everybody. But yeah, we, <laughs> if you need my household, I really need the Irish to win. Right. It's great. It's great to see you, Julia. Thanks for coming. That's good seeing you. Thanks for having me guys. I appreciate Thanks, it. Julia. All right. Bye.